Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Ciao si, ciao si, which is, of course, Mandarin for Achtung, Achtung. <coughs> uh, after our operation of our kit garden extravaganza, James and I have returned to Blighty with Dutch hangovers. Actually, I had a very odd day the day after the day I got back. I didn't feel right. I think it was the 8% beer I was drinking with John in the para bar late well, at night. You, you, have my, you have my sympathy. You have my sympathy. Well, I'm, I'm I mean, amazed you know. I do. Oh, crikey. Anyway, Dutch hangovers and some cracking memories from Arnhem and Nijmegen. And uh, uh, actually, if you've heard James's rendition of our current sponsor's <laughs> message, you'll get a good sense of how much he enjoyed his evening in the Blue Hand pub in Nijmegen. Now that's what I call taking your job seriously, James. Oh um, dear me! It was a one-man um, <laughs> victory lap. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it was one of those moments where one minute I was fine, and the next minute I was having to read that out, and I absolutely wasn't. <laughs> it crept up on me, but very quickly. <laughs> right. Well, a big thank you to all of our listeners. Uh, record numbers of you joined us during our nine days of Market Garden. Um, uh, and I, I have to say, I mean, I enjoyed the whole thing enormously, and it was great. But my my the highlight for me was being on the bridge and you coming over up those steps and uh, you not having been there before, because you know we've been doing this for quite a while now and you're always the expert. And finally, I got my <laughs> moment to go. That was over there and that was over there. I win. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I you know I I was the I was the pupil. You were my my teacher. Um, um, so it, yeah, it was fantastic. I. I <laughs> My wife has been criticising me for saying absolutely amazing too often, but it was absolutely amazing. I mean, it, it really was absolutely amazing. I completely loved it. I thought the whole thing was just utterly fascinating from start to finish. Yeah. And it was amazing, wasn't it? How It really was amazing. Um, how, how well um, commemorated and supported it was over there in sharp contrast to over here in the UK. Yeah, there wasn't much about it. There was the, there was the sort of page seven articles in the papers, wasn't there? Features, yep. with the, uh, uh, but not a lot of TV coverage. And um, I didn't see any TV coverage the, at uh, all. Uh, well, I, I don't know. Was it? Was it? Was there? A th- I, there may have been something on the news on Saturday about the about the drop that they did on um, Saturday. But I don't know. I just sort of. Um, I, uh, maybe it's me. Maybe it's because I grew up on Market Garden. If it's not on the news on the, around the seventeenth. 
I think there's something gone wrong, but it did seem odd. I mean, perhaps what we've had is that D-Day was, all the D-Day coverage, in the, uh, of which there was masses and um, which, you know, you're a big feature of, and that was absolutely amazing. Um, that, that, <laughs> that, that, that maybe that maybe telly has gone, all right, that's it. That's, that's all right, we've done World War II now. We had to have Trump come over and, we, and, and French presidents and, uh, uh, you know, prelates and celebs and plays on the telly and fly pasts and all that sort of thing. And perhaps they kind of think, well, we've done it now. It's over. World War Two has officially ended. And maybe from the BBC's point of view, they're so pumped up for the start of um, World on Fire that they're kind of trying to keep their powder dry. Who knows? Yeah, perhaps. I mean, I don't know. That that would that would uh, involve a calculation where one end of the BBC knew what the other end of the BBC was yeah, up that's to. True. So that's um, obviously not going to happen. <laughs> is it? Um, yeah, no, it's interesting because actually, my wife Rachel, she's. I mean, not only did she take me up on the point of saying absolutely amazing every two minutes um yeah. she was the one who said and she's not really interested in second world war at all but she said it's absolutely disgraceful how little there has been on the media about about this and she was she was the one who pointed it out to me actually well it did seem it did seem peculiar i mean the the the, the, the main thing for me though as you say is how well commemorated it is in arnhem itself and you see those maroon flags with the pegasus on absolutely everywhere sort of basically every other house and and the signs in so- shops saying veterans welcome and very much a sense of the occasion of it and all that sort of thing in the town. But for me, the, the absolutely the, the the highlight for me was standing at the end of the road where um, Urquhart was trapped in the house right by the St. Elizabeth Hospital. And you look to the left and there's a railway line and, and it's a busy railway line. So there's always a train going through. So you're reminded it's there. And you look down to the right, like another 150 metres and there's the river. And that's why Market Garden failed. That, yep. that, that bottleneck. Yep. And you can take, you can, you can drop as close or as far as you want, but if you've got a bottleneck, well, uh, well apart from General Gavin, that is what, that's why the British component of Market Garden failed. We'll get to General Gavin in a minute. I've just been <laughs> handed a piece of paper. This is Gavin exclamation mark. We'll get to that in a minute. That is, that's why they had yeah. such trouble. And it's a that, really, really small piece of real estate, isn't it? It really it's is. tiny. And there's and also, nothing like a railway line, a, a little raised railway line, where yeah. someone to rest your MG42 to give you a really fantastic bit of um, cover, but also a field of fire. And also that field of fire goes down the street. You're looking down on it. Oh, I mean, from a machine gunner's point of down, view, you've got that whole yeah. area covered. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's and that and that housing estate to get to that point is a grid. So so they're being they're uh, they're being enfiladed all the way down yes, to the because, end where because they get... they're advancing across the axis. You know their axis yeah. of advance is at ninety yeah. degrees to the yeah. fire from the railway line. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's just and then you get, and then there's the hospital, which is obviously a neutral space. So what do you do that? Well, if you try and run up one side of the hospital, you're alongside the railway line, and if you try and run up the other side of the hospital, you're in the area without any cover. And it uh, until you get to the museum on the, uh, 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 or, well, just before you get to the museum on the right hand side of that road of the upper Utrechtweg. So the whole thing, you, you. you you, you, the thing I really took, I mean, I've been there several times before, but the real value of standing on the ground and looking at the place and actually being able to size up the place right there in front of you and go, right, well, this is why on day one it was a problem and on day two it was worse and on day three on the Tuesday it was an absolute disaster because if the Germans have effectively blocked that. There is absolutely no way to get to the bridge. And you, at what point do you as as the one of those battalion commanders actually go you know what we're never going to get through let's let's uh, make the best of our job and go back to Oosterbeek go back to the you know 
or, or form a perimeter somewhere because after all the the perimeter that they arrive at is sort of one of last resort rather than any brilliantly chosen position so i mean it, just standing there and seeing the ground and very much sort of um and also that the, the Ur- was right there at the front of where the problem was in that loft obviously thinking stones throw from the hospital yeah yeah what the hell's going on literally over the road and, and actually that house he was in was literally halfway between the railway line the river, and, and the river yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely amazing. It's not, but nuts. but it is. It is. I I think one of the those interesting things of walking the ground is that you get. It's always kind of it's it's familiar because you've looked at enough maps and enough black and white yeah. photographs or whatever. So you sort of go, okay, yeah, right, yeah, 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 okay, that's that bit there. But at the same time, it's unfamiliar as well. It it, it always surprises you, uh, and the yeah. thing that you don't get from looking at a map or looking from a black and white photograph is you don't really get that sense of scale. No, and it's only when you are in the actual place where these events took place and standing on that bit of ground that you suddenly go, oh, I get it. I yeah. understand now. And, you know, yeah. we were talking about Mark Clark the other day and, and, and Rome and turning on to Rome. My Damascene moment on that was when I was standing where Fifth Corps would have broken out of the Anzio beachhead and I was looking yeah. up to the Auburn Hills and I was thinking, Jesus, you know, I wouldn't want to be in a force kind of going across because that's exactly the same problem your axis of advance is 90 degrees against the german 14th army are all on the top of that hill and that's what prompted me to kind yeah. of investigate all this and go hang on a minute was it really such a bad idea after all and was it a dodgy decision and you know obviously i concluded not but it really does make a difference being there it really yeah. really does yeah yeah absolutely and the the, the other thing that uh, I, I mean when we when you turned up at the bridge the other thing is how tiny that space is how small mm. the the lodgement they had on the bridge was and uh, how brutal that must have been that everyone yeah. on top of each other and how close the fighting was, must have had to been. And Well, my it, favourite it, moment of it, that bit was was you said, that's where that really famous photograph was taken. And I knew, I had that absolutely imprinted on my mind. And it was like, yes, that, that is it. That's the spot. Yeah. And there is something yeah. inc- profoundly moving about... That's why I love those then and now shots. You know, the black yeah, and white yeah. photo of a marrying up and going, crikey, you know, I'm, I'm on this exact same spot. There's something very kind of, there's emotional connection then that you, yeah. you don't have from reading a book or... Yeah, it's no, no longer ar- it's no longer arrows on a map, it's people. No, it's, 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 it's real, it's real. Now, the, the, the thing we, the, 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 of course, the we, we just touched it a moment ago, the, the, the business of the bridge at Nijmegen and General Gavin... Um, <laughs> You, the the podcast you did with uh, RG with Rob Pullison I thought was was fascinating. Yeah, um, it's one of the few ones with He's you. He's a lovely that fellow. I, that well. I, like, that I actually bothered listening to, and uh, <laughs> 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 I didn't get into this to listen to you, James. No, it's that's the fair sound enough. of my own voice that matters. Um, anyway, that that I thought that was really interesting, and and that he has obviously been right down to the very like. The, the the right into the documents and right into the written record and right into the orders and right into to, to find out actually what went on and what went on is there was no effort to take the bridge and then yeah. and then he says of course there was a possibility on the night of the 19th when 30 core arrived and and they and they, that wasn't taken either yeah i mean i i i've always yeah. rather i've always been a bit of a fan of jim gavin i mean he was pretty cool headed in sicily um, yeah, he was amazing at Lafayette and and everything on the um, on on the murder a on um, the D Day yeah. drop, 
And, you know, he's a pretty cool guy. I mean, youngest general in the US Army, kind of worked his way up from nothing and all the rest of it. And yeah. and um, as you know, I've got a bit of a thing about the Sherman Rage's yeomanry. And I was yeah. um, some years ago editing Stanley Christopherson's diaries, who was the CEO of the Sherwood Rangers. And he was working in tandem with Jim Gavin at Eindhoven and had nothing but praise for him. Said, he, you know, he's yeah. an absolute top bloke and all the rest of it. So I've always been very kind of um, well disposed towards him. But... It, you're right. And also, the other thing is, someone like um, RG, I mean, it's interesting how there's so much kind of sort of rolling of stones, you know, that that that, that yeah. the same old line just gets repeated over and over and again. So a, a historian comes along and they've, they've, le- they've sort of found a bit more about some letters from someone who was there and a few more eyewitness testimonies and they've got a slightly different take on pattern or something like that. But basically, it's a, yep, there's a whole yep. lot of assumed knowledge that just gets, gets rolls over into the next book, the next TV yep. programme, all the rest of it. And actually, yep. sometimes it takes one person to just go, hang on a minute, that doesn't make any sense to me. I'm going to investigate this a little bit harder and look into it. And his research is as valid as anybody's. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, 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 Gavin, of course, broke two discs landing at Nijmegen, so maybe he was off his tits. On, uh... <laughs> <laughs> maybe I mean, the that's other thing, it. I mean, the he other might thing, have just been. Well, and then the other thing is Gavin then goes on to be... Oh, oh. <laughs> Who's that calling, James? Is that a... That's the Gavin family, is it? Um, <laughs> Probably is, yeah. Come to crucify the, the me. Gavinist, their yeah. estate. Yeah, you alleged our, you alleged our uh, much honoured client was uh, under the influence of mafia drugs yeah. when making it. I want you to know, sir, we're of- going to sue you. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> sorry, old boy. Don't, don't sue me, sue R.G. Poulison. <laughs> But anyway, but yeah, no, uh, I mean, but but yeah, but is the is the uh, the Arnhem elephant in the room is the is the Nijmegen Bridge, no doubt about it. Yep, and it never comes up. It's the radios, or oh, it's the Panzer SS. So we get people going, "It's a Panzer SS at the bridge." That's what it was, and the radios didn't work, and they dropped too far away. And it, no, they didn't take Nijmegen Bridge. Well, it's amazing how many they? tweets of people come in and say said. As far as I'm concerned, it's all Monty's fault. He was arrogant yeah, and hubristic. Yeah. Full stop. Yeah. It was the Panzer SS. But actually, okay. it turns out it wasn't. It was all down to Jim Gavin. It's Jim Gavin. Well, it's there we go. Uh, whether yeah, he was on morphine, yeah. whether he wasn't, who knows? But it was his fault. Just don't mention that again. Right, okay. <laughs> so that's um, Market Garden done for now. Yes. Um, uh, although it's a bulging suitcase, and I'm sure it will pop open from time to time. Well, After I think week, so. Um, well, yeah, and um, one of the things that's been really brilliant about about this this series of podcasts for Market Garden is how much uh, uh, interaction we've had with our uh, virtual audience. Um, it's been quite fantastic to have people get so involved um, and uh, enjoy it because um, I, I thought it was quite nice to get our teeth into something properly. Really good, and it's made me want to learn a bit more. I've got to say, which I need yeah, to very quickly. Yeah, yeah, you do. I'm You're not having you trump me again. I tell you. Yeah. <laughs> Right, well, we will be producing more special editions of the podcast as and when James and I fancy a boozy few days on the continent. Talking of which, an email from Leon Hornsby. Dear heads of the escape committee, I think I'm big X. Um, uh, (laughs) um, uh, Great podcast, but my wife thinks that it's having too big an effect on my life. Following recent podcasts, I had a revelation. I researched the route James mentioned was used to escape from Spain to France. I believe he was referring to the Chemin de Liberté. 
My friends and I purchased a copy of Escape from Colditz and drove to Saint-Girand, the south of France, to have a game. And then we walked to freedom in Spain. It was harder than we thought. Uh, please see attached pictures and videos. Um, uh, we didn't take any photos of the crashed Halifax. Sorry, we were all a bit hypothermic at that point and couldn't keep the camera still. Have you any other great holiday suggestions? Well, yeah. Yeah, where do you start? Well, I mean... yeah, if you want to walk the ground, that's the, uh, there's no better way of doing it. I mean, wh- I, I, I've always thought you get the ferry from... Um, Portsmouth to Weestrom. Yep. And you come in and there's there's the... Um, Pegasus Bridge uh, just the, down the road. Pegasus Bridge just down the road. There's the D-Day landing beaches, the British end. It's, yeah. it's, don't miss, the, don't miss the bridges over the River Dee. They're always good. Yeah. It's it's all Draw there. Yep. And then and then and you only have to drive, I don't know, what, twenty miles south and you you start to get into kind of Falaise country and all yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. And, and there all that. it all is. And then, you know, I mean, if you really fancy it, go to Egypt. I mean, it's not the best place in the world right now but you know Alamein's a fantastic place to go and visit Tunisia that's really good lots there um yeah if you're feeling adventurous um but otherwise I mean look at think about the Mediterranean I mean Sicily, well, Sicily. Crete, Leros, Simi, Rhodes I mean you, you can sit you can sit and drink a coffee overlooking many prominent uh, Italian battlefields and feel Feel like you're on holiday as well as um, yeah. Italy, on a bit of Italy. A World well, War I'm, II. I'm off to Italy Thursday morning. You know, going to have a look at the Gothic line, uh, Montesoli. Actually, I'm going to Montesoli. You remember I was telling you about that massacre that happened? Yeah. Yep, up there. Yeah. So I mean, you know, apart from that, it's always a bit of a downer. But um, uh, I've got to say, <laughs> it's, you can't fault it for beauty. It's absolutely but then, amazing. But then, but then also you could go to Berlin. I mean, but I, I bet Berlin is one of my. Uh, now I'm about to sound like a complete. Um, London media wanker. Berlin's easily my favourite city break, James. Like, um, <laughs> it's such a great city break. I don't know if you'd like city breaks. Um, it's such a great city break because you can be there pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, and then you, you know, you, the the Reich Chancellor's over here and the Brandenburg Gate's over there and the Adlon, you know, famously yep. where they took all those phone calls of the switchboard is over there and then you can walk down the Tiergarten to where the flak turn was yes. and and it's right and there the and the block yeah the whole thing the whole so lot. so I and and again a, a very nice refreshing drinks in the evening in Berlin yes. but but I would I would really recommend going there it's a fantastic place to and visit. of course you can go to the Eagle's Nest and Burke's Garden yeah 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 go and stay in the hotel yeah, where I, Goering's house was I think Leon was Leon's Leon was saying his wife wasn't keen on this but there you go that, <laughs> hey honey that's why you need to go to Italy yeah. You can even go to the lovely Val Dorcha. Val Dorcha in Southern Tuscany. Absolutely beautiful. One of the most or lovely Crete. places. Yeah. But the Val Dorcha, just to go back to Val Dorcha, that's where yeah. Iris Arrigo lived, a place called La right. Foce. And you can go and visit it. And it's amazing, beautiful landscape gardens by, um, by a British designer done in the 1920s and she kept this wartime diary and she held um she looked after all these partisans and children that had been evacuated from turin and milan um and, and they had to do this march because the the uh, herman goering division turned up and uh, booted them out and they had to go to montepulciano and do this 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 trek down from their house up to the nearby town um and it's all in the diary and it's amazing and you can you can walk the walk and you can see the sights wow. and it's all fantastic and and it's just beautiful and amazing wine amazing food it's just yeah. a great place to visit and and um hmm. his wife will be really happy okay well there we go there there you go leon that's right go. okay now leon leon also asks a question um was general gort um a, a world war one general fighting a world war two battle or a great bloke let down by his allies um well he certainly wasn't a world war one general fighting a world war two 
battle. No, because no, not uh, at all. Not even not at all. Um, because actually, he was a chap, wasn't he? He was a chap. He'd won a Victoria Cross, hadn't he? he yeah, and he right was Lord Gort, super brave and mega army establishment. So yeah, so also, probably uh, he was also Field Marshal by then as well. Yeah, so so he probably gives this vibe of being like um, old army. Yeah. So uh, rather than some of the more modernising generals, who, who basically what happens is the old army lose the Second World War, part one of the Second World War, and then the new army elbow their way through and go, actually, I think we're going to run this now. Thanks very much, and and get into Churchill's ear and say. To be honest, you've got. We've been paying attention. We all went to staff college. We're basically the same two or three carders. Yeah. We all know. We all know each other. Yeah. And they elbow their way through and take over. Yeah. It's kind of kind of what happens. So Gort, you could characterise as, you know, riding boots and Gort was um, chief of the Imperial General Staff before. Yeah. And he steps down to take command of the BEF, the British Expeditionary Force, in France when they head over in um, the autumn of 1939. Um, and then afterwards, obviously, someone else has already taken that position of Chief of the Imperial General Staff. So mm. he can't be Imperial Chief of the General Staff again, which is, after all, the top job in the army, really. And then he's kind of sort of wandering around in the wilderness for a little bit before he then becomes Governor of um, of Malta um, yeah. in May 1942 and gets sent over there. And actually, yeah. it's a really good call setting him there because Malta's yeah. been covered by a bunch of kind of B-listers, really. And suddenly, he's A-list. You know, he's someone who's got a VC. He's, he's Field Marshal Viscount Gort. VC and and that's a very yeah. impressive message. it sends out a big message to Maltese but I think where and and is he let down by his allies in France well yes um and and you know I do think the French have a lot to answer for in 1940 but that's because they're doing the lion's share of the of the land fighting but I yeah. think where where Gort doesn't push far enough is on the communications level you know they're, they're, mm. they're a bit slow as well instinctively so the whole yeah. point about with the germans in 1940 yeah. is, is they can move but the really thing quickly, is though whereas no none of the allies can yeah. move fast and it's not just the french who yeah. don't move fast the british don't move fast either you know when on the 10th of may they're moving up from the french border to to the river dial which is in belgium yeah and you know they don't get. You know the, the the alarm has happened at kind of in the early hours of of the tenth of May, and they don't move till kind of lunchtime. You know it's a bit like yeah, horrors. yeah. But what we're to, but what we're talking about here though is if the question is was he a World War One general fighting World War Two battle? We have to say no. Yeah. Um. No. 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 Because because after all, I think what he means by a World War One general is a fellow in a chateau with a static line yeah. um not thinking three-dimensionally not um uh, not using uh, um c- combined um uh, operations so your artillery is plugged into your infantry which is plugged into your armor which is plugged into everything else and you're trying to fight a war and maneuver that's exactly what the british were trying to do at the start of the second world war that was the in fact the lesson they had they had digested and although the army's portrayed as hidebound and ill-equipped it was pretty well equipped it's fully mechanized the only fully mechanized army in the world and and, and this and this british philosophy that we've talked about before that the machine does the that the metal take the do the still not flesh so yeah still not flesh so you so what you do is you build a uh you 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 build tanks you build trucks and you build kit and that's the thing that does the work rather than having you know, just riflemen, which is predominantly what the German army's made up of yep. and what predominantly the French army's made up of. So he's not trying to fight a World War One-style battle at all. He's trying to fight a lessons learned of World War One. We won't let that happen again because the, everything the British do is designed to not repeat the First World War. Absolutely, Absolutely. everything. Absolutely. And that, and, that, and that includes, that's politically. So appeasement is about not getting yourself in a three-quarters of a million 
war dead situation yeah. or a million war dead situation and 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 then the way you order strategic bombers in uh, in uh, in the mid 30s is to do with that and the area bombing campaign yeah. that follows it's all to do with not meeting the germans in the same way on the front line that you met them absolutely and what 18. you see what you see in 1939 and 1940 is you see the british armed forces they've already worked out their strategy and that strategy doesn't change yeah. at all in the second world war they've worked out no. the meth- they've worked out the principles but they haven't worked out the process. So what they've yeah. said is, okay, we're not going to have a big army. It doesn't matter what happened. We're never going to have a, an army of, of, of millions, field army of millions again. We're never going to have that because the bigger the army, the more casualties you take. It's just, it's just the way it is. So we're going to really limit the size of our army quite deliberately. We're going to go big on naval power. We're going to go really big on air power. And that's still growing, obviously, in 1940. Um but the army that we do have, we're going to have them completely mechanised. You know, we're not going to have people foot slogging. We're not going to be using mules and horses again. You know, we're go- we're going to be fully mechanised. We're going to get steel, not flesh. Do the hard yards. But that that methodology, that strategy, hasn't been tested in the field until yeah. 1940 in the Blitzkrieg. Yeah. And suddenly, what they realise is actually there's a few things that actually they need they haven't got right so they haven't worked yeah. out comms they haven't got enough radios they, they haven't worked out that actually they need to get a shift on that they need to operate faster the other thing they haven't worked out is how to maintain themselves in the field so all their base camps are all still back in england and actually first armor division needs to have its maintenance units over in france and that is a mistake yeah. that they never make ever again they really do learn the lessons very yeah, very yeah, quick yeah. and the germans meanwhile are fighting with steel and flesh that 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 that, yes. that they don't care about their butcher's bill, <clears throat> and that the not so much. interesting, not so much. And the interesting thing about about Blitzkrieg is actually it, how, how costly it is for the Germans in the, in the, in 1940. Well, in terms and of then, machinery, and, definitely, and in terms of aircraft. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, an, an, an awful lot. Of, what is it? Twenty seven thousand dead, and then and then like that. Uh, at least a hundred thousand injured, something like that. So it's like a lot. That's a you know that's a that's a whole chunk of people and then of course when they the next year when they turn the thing on russia um uh, the 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 cost goes through the roof well by they're they're not fighting like that by october 19 i think it's the end of october certainly certainly by november 1941 they have they've run out of manpower you know they are having to change the rules that doesn't happen to britain until summer of 1944 yeah Okay, so General Gort was uh, not a World War One fighting a general fighting World War Two battle. We have concluded, and he was probably a nice enough chap, and he was definitely let down by his allies. But also, if we're down. honest, <laughs> to an, no, he let himself down. He let his school well, down. He let, he let your family down. down. No, but to an extent, he, um, the, the fact that the, the, the British and the French didn't figure out how to talk to each other, didn't figure out how to coordinate their campaigns and didn't actually figure out what they both wanted in the end. It's like the starter's pistol is fired on May the 10th and then they're both kind of on their own and and looking over each other's shoulder, looking over the shoulder at the other going, oh shit, the French have vanished on our our right flank. What do we do now? And rather than than any kind of coordinated thing. And that's as much the fault of the British as it is of the French, you know, yeah. there's, there's a, there is a, there is a, there is a sort of um, institutional and political failure to, to, to stick those two things together, which is immediately the moment we start working with the Americans, a thing that we set about solving massively. Yes, and, but and, one, and, of, one of the big problems is that there's so much political disharmony within France that oh, it, yeah. that it, the military only works well when there's political unity at the top, unity of purpose, mm. and the big yeah. problem that the French have right from the word go. And this stymies absolutely everything. And it just means that they're, they're sort of, they're semi-paralysed. 
is that there is no you know there's, there's such a big coalition political coalition this is not this is not the lib dens and the tories this is like yeah. a coalition of something like 11 different parties from kind of right wingers to communists almost i mean you know it's not quite as bad yeah. as that but i mean y- you know it, it just means that no one can ever agree anything and you see in these opening months of the war the decision making or lack of decision making about norway which you know churchill first puts forward in september 1939 no decision is made till april i mean it just goes on and on and on you know do we bomb the yeah, rhine yeah. barges no because you know we might get a bit scared about that you know some french are saying yeah we should do some french are saying they can't they can't agree them themselves so the the, yeah. the the kind of political kind of thought process the political authority doesn't seep down to the highest levels of the command and so everyone's just they're kind of sort of making it up as they go along and, it, yeah, and yeah. just not enough stuff is fought through and yeah. that's why they get in such a pickle yeah well right then it's time for a short break when we return we'll be in berlin and paris but not literally Well, welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and historian James Holland. There you go, James. Gave you your wow. adjective. I know, I know. But you're, you're getting more and more historian now, especially <laughs> after Market Garden. If you did miss our coverage of Operation Market Garden, it's all still available wherever you get your podcasts. And you can pretty much listen to it in any order if you want. Um, but it, we did take some time to think about what order to put them out, didn't we? We did yeah. at one point. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> A little bit. Now then. Now then, your questions. Uh, I want to start with a counterfactual. I mean, I know we say we don't do what-ifs, but anyway. This is Martin Sheridan from Dublin who got in touch to say, and I was in Dublin last week, a whale of a time, love the pod. My question is, if the Allies had not got as far east after D-Day and were held up by the Germans as winter and then spring set in, would the Russians have kept going west after they reached Berlin? And if so, how far west would they have got before there was Allied intervention? Would they have dared strike for Paris? Hmm. I don't think so. I, 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 I mean, let, so let, 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 let's say let's say the Allies grind to a halt after Market Garden. That they're like that that they're, they're done at this point. Let's 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 take that as our arbitrary uh, halt point. You know, autumn closes in, supply lines are too long. Ike decides that what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to sort that out rather than keep rolling forward, sort that out, sort out the port, sort out the supply, and then a massive push come the spring. I, so let's say they've taken... I, I think the Russians would have probably... I, I, I don't know, because you just don't know. But do wouldn't the Russians be? keep fighting while the Germans would keep fighting? If there's Germans hmm. to fight, they'd keep fighting them, wouldn't they? I suppose But there would so. be lots of... But on the other hand, they, they, they went on hold, didn't they, outside Warsaw? Yep. The previous year. I mean, well, I know... Stalin was getting increasingly pissed off that, you know, that he felt the Allies weren't pulling their weight. Weren't pulling their weight, They were having to kind of sacrifice all that. So, you know, and also, the further they go, the more their length of their... Supply lines are... Am I not right in thinking, though, they were starting, basically, to run out of manpower by the end of... by by the summer of 1945. They were pretty much running short, beginning to run out of people. And that the... That they they didn't have infinitely well, deep pockets, and that it, it, let, let's say because because let's say the, our Western allies aren't fighting their share of the Germans, and that those Germans can now direct and redirect and fight the Russians. I'm assuming that's what he's saying, it, it, because held up implies some sort of static uh, front yeah. line, doesn't it? I, I don't know. I just sort of think I think the Russians would have kept going. F- 
until they destroyed Germany. I don't know that they'd have had any particular interest in France. Didn't no, fall, I don't fall think into so. their traditional sphere of influence and all no, that. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think they were any, they were interested in that at all. I, I think that's the interesting thing. I think the French communists thought they might be, but they they weren't. Yeah. Although um, I remember Dennis Healy talking, uh, 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 reading his diaries, I think, and him saying or a biography of him, him in nineteen forty, wasn't he? Yeah, exactly. And then, but then, uh, uh, you know, goes into the Labour Party, goes to the Labour Party conference, I think, in battle dress that year in forty five after the war. And I think he talks about how if the Russians had if the Russians had boots, that's all they'd need to get all the Russians need to get to the channel is boots. You know, we are done. We're on our uppers. We're not. We're broke. The, any willingness to fight has gone. And if they want, if they that's all the Russians need is boots to get to the channel. And I seem to remember that as a sort of sentiment that was flying around among some, you know, it, it, smart people in 1945. I don't know. It's, it's interesting, of, though, but that's that's very much the view of the of the kind of sort of the junior officer. Yeah, I mean, you, I don't think you get that quite so much at the higher levels. Yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's such an interesting one, isn't it? But you know, what is the motivation it dep- of the Russians? Well, it stuff? depends what the Russians are doing. Are they on a war, are they embarking in a war of a kind of self defence and sphere of influence, or are they in, 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 in a war of conquest and a war of invasion? And I suppose if you're Polish, they're involved in a war of invasion. Yeah. Um, uh, if you're German, it's really influence, isn't it? I mean, it's really yeah. influence. I mean, yeah. the, the other thing is, is, I think they were getting low on manpower by the time Berlin falls. Yeah, um, that's uh, the. And, and, the point is, is, they put so much effort into taking Berlin quickly. I mean, Stalin yeah. saying to Eisenhower, oh, no, we're not really interested in Berlin. That's not what we want to do. Yeah. Uh, but really planning this massive operation. And the Russians lose literally just gargantuan numbers of men yeah. in that final battle for Berlin. I think yeah. it's something like casualties of 800,000 people. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, yeah, it's yeah. double the amount of people that Britain loses in the entire war. Yeah, I mean, ma- it's an army of three million, isn't it? That they, yeah. that they, or two armies, pincering in you know yeah, yeah. vast amounts. Uh, but, but, then, but, but, but the casualties that, are just horrific. I mean, but that is terrific. The, but that is the Germans fighting to the last round generally. By that, yes, by yes, that yes but it's also because so. of the race between Konyev and, yeah. and Zukov yeah. uh, and yeah. the pride and the kind of the, the kind of sort of divide and rule sort of tactics that Stalin goes in for and the pressure that's put on them to get on with it and quickly the, and to get and there the, before the Allies do. Yeah. You know, and that's profi- something that Stalin is sort of breaking up. Yeah. Yeah, profligacy with life. Yeah, yeah, totally. Sh- I mean, they're way and a shorter is- tail as which is much shorter tail as well, isn't it? So more of those three million men are, 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 are fighting. fighting. Yeah, 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 yeah. So okay, um, well, I th- yeah. So we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Having a clue? No idea. But it's an interesting mate. one. Now we have a question um, uh, from Matt oh, yes. Bragg. Do you, do you want to read this one, James? Yeah, that's, it's a nice one actually. What are the best small museums to visit up and down the country that people wouldn't have necessarily heard of? And, and I actually remember you went to one quite recently, didn't you? Yes, I was in Carlisle. Um, that's right. Uh, in the spring, gigging. Well, I wasn't gigging in Carlisle. I had a gig in Motherwell and a gig in Alveston. It felt like Carlisle was, Carlisle was sort of the best place to commute from. And so I had a Sunday to kill in Carlisle. And, you know, uh, the Border Regiment Museum is there in the castle, in Carlisle Castle. And it's really good. It, 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 they have they've, all the sort of pipes and drums and standards of the, of the old regiments as they, you know, as, they, as they evolve and then get named and then the locality settles down, all that sort of thing. And then, of course, the Border Regiment were at Arnhem, so there's some stuff about that. And then upstairs at the museum, and I, and I had a long chat with one of the curators and he gave me, he gave me a book about um, 
the Border Regiment in the war, which is very, very interesting because they wear a glider batch, uh, patch still and people assume it's from Arnhem and it's from Sicily hmm. um, where they all got dropped in the um, yep. uh, Mediterranean. Anyway, the, the, the upstairs at that museum, they had a really great display about Afghanistan with guys talking about being in Afghanistan. Um, really, really excellently uh, curated. So, um, so they, they'd have just the stuff that was in someone's pack. So you know, Rolos and then breath freshener and then a letter and, uh, and his dressing, field dressing and all this sort of stuff. Just to, just to show the sort of um, kind of from the bottom up, the soldier's experience. It was really, really, really good. And the, and the curator in there was saying, oh, we have lots of old guys come through and they listen to these young guys talk about um, Afghanistan and it's the same. Although the the location might be different, the the ostensible cause might be different, but the men's experience is essentially the same. Their experience of combat, their experience of companionship, what they're what what they're actually fighting for. Aside, you know, once they've had the the lecture from the you know the education officer about what they're fighting for, what they're actually fighting for, and all that sort of stuff. And it was it was fascinating. And the other one I'd recommend is um, the Soldiers of of Oxford Museum, the Sopho Museum in. um, Woodstock outside Oxford ah. near Blenheim and it's this tiny little museum run by my dad was involved in volunteering there so right. that's why it's just sprung right. to mind because the bollocking I would have got if I had not mentioned it <laughs> but um it's it's a very charming museum and their thing is their th- it's civil war right through so it's soldiers right. from Oxfordshire so they, yeah, they, they look they're, they're kind of they're, they're not they're not focused on any one conflict in particular and it's really really good and their archive is magic they let and I, they let me poke around the archive one evening which was incredible and we did a thing there a while ago about Arnhem where we showed there it's the glory there was an old para there and I was sort of talking about the history that had been written I talked about Robert E Robert J Kershaw's book it only snows it never snows in September right famous book if you're familiar with the history of the history of Arnhem and that bloke goes that book was written by a German. I said, it wasn't. It was written by a guy called Robert J. Kershaw. No, it was written by a German. And his daughter goes, you never with an argue with a man from the parachute regiment who was at the bridge at Arnhem. Right. <laughs> well, I won't then. Actually, he lives anyway. in Salisbury. He lives just down the road from me. Um, yeah, he does. He does. He lives in Salisbury. Bob Kershaw, right. he's a nice right. fellow, actually. Um, he's a very nice guy. Um, yeah, I've got a couple. Go so um, there's a lovely one at Manston. Uh, lovely little museum, ah. sort of Battle Britain, Aviation Museum, all sorts of stuff, Spitfires there, et cetera, et cetera. And lots of, it's just really done with a lot of passion and love and care, yeah. and that's really nice. There's also, you know, there's so many of those sort of bomber airfields, old bomber airfields in East Anglia and stuff. Yeah. Um, there's a lovely one at Ridgewell, uh, which is where the 381st Bomb Group were. And they've just got, you know, they've got a Nissan Hut and it's got stuff in it and artifacts and bits and pieces and bits of old plane. And But again, they've just done it really really nicely and it's done by people who 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 just really love it uh, there's another there's a sort of collection rather than a museum is the wield foundation run by this amazing guy called mike yeah. Gibb, i've told you about and it's got this it's just in the in kent near tunbridge i think it is or maidstone something yeah. like that and he's got this absolutely astonishing collection of working German vehicles. He's got a Panther, Jag Panther, hasn't he? Jag yeah. Panther. Jag Panther. He's got a Jag Panther, two Stugs, half track, all sorts of stuff. Prime movers, the whole work. They all work. Um, so I suppose it, it sort of is a museum, but it isn't a museum. Mm. But I think you can go there and go and look at it and, you know, they run them up 
from time to time. Yeah. In fact, we should go there. We really right. should go there. In fact, let's let's, let's agree. Do it. We're going. Let's do it. We'll do it. Do it then. We'll do it. Now we have uh, one one more. We've got time for one more question. Benjamin Thomas Scott says, "I'm a massive fan of the podcast, and have won countless arguments with my brother because of James. I know not because oh, of me though. Okay. Thanks, Benjamin. How easy? This is a good question. How easy was it to avoid conscription during World War Two in the UK? We believe a relative in the family may have achieved this by swapping his first and middle names and telling people a different date of birth. It's been a family mystery for a while, but we've just found out his birth certificate and uh, we've just found his birth certificate discovering the truth. What do we know? What do we know about this, James? I don't think it was terribly easy to avoid, actually. I think you, you not without help. You know, you needed someone to kind of, you know, a medical officer to kind of go, oh, no, he's definitely got a dodgy chest. You know, yeah. all that kind of thing. You know, so you needed to kind of slip a bung to a doctor, but most doctors wouldn't do this, but some did. Um, of course, one of the ways of avoiding conscription was to have a reserved occupation. You know, you could, yeah. uh, uh, and of course, the um, um, a lot of them were were put down the mines, and uh, actually, they were conscripted to go down the mines. Having said that, yeah, um, you know, obviously, if you're working on the land, you could avoid it because you're you're farm working. But again, an awful lot of people chose to ignore that and did join up anyway. I don't think it was terribly easy to to dodge it to be honest but how well, obviously many... i think if you're really really determined and you want to kind of you know alter... but how many miss how many men were missing as it were in 1944 what because i think there i did, i i read i can't remember where i read this but there were we were there were basically a million men unaccounted for in like 1944 oh no but you this is carlo deste's big argument that actually Britain was saying it had a manpower crisis and it didn't because there were 93 battalions still in England that weren't doing anything. And um, there was this brilliant academic piece which just absolutely hung Carlo Deste up Hmm. to dry because he just went through every single being saying why his figures were false why he was wrong why he completely misunderstood what he was reading right um, etc etc um uh, and actually there was a manpower crisis by the summer of 1944 and 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 i have to dig out that article but not the one he but, but not the one he thinks it was no I, I'm, I'm gonna go away and find out because i i've got a Somewhere on one of the bookshelves in the house, I think I've got a book called Deserter, because there was a book published five or six years ago about this, about... Lots of people the, deserted. Well, not, but not just about that, you know, about people people who never turned up and then and then people who did desert and all that sort of thing. I mean, famously... Yeah, I mean, also, course, you, could, you could just avoid your conscription, yeah, well, just, yeah, just yeah. disappear. Well, because that's the thing, Spike Milligan didn't turn up for ages, it's the, yeah. according to his memoirs, which I'm, I'm now... Haven't we talked about the other day, and I'm... Yes. We 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 what what we ha what i want to do another subject i want to talk about i want to talk about combat fatigue and the the way they develop techniques for that and and his experience oh, you've got them all there his experience and the way he describes um the incident where he where he can't cope anymore is absolutely amazing and the like chapter after that where he describes his experience of being of being unable to stop crying and being removed from the line and then taken care of is is brilliant and uh Anyway, we'll, we'll, that, that's for another time. That's all we've got time for this week. Remember to keep your questions coming in via Twitter, please, using the hashtag WeHaveWays or for the elderly by email to WeHaveWaysPodcast <laughs> at gmail.com. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, please do subscribe if you haven't done so already. Uh, and leave us a rating and a review. Catch Thanks you next time. Thanks very much. See you next time, everyone. Cheerio. Cheerio.